Psalm uh, 123, the one that we're on today, as we're going through Psalms 120 through 133, is a powerful image of tenderness. It's beautiful, actually, in the way that it talks about intimacy with God. It reminds me of the story in the New Testament of Mary and Martha, where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, looking up and listening to him. Its description also even reminds me of John, the apostle, who was the beloved of the Lord, who at the Last Supper was leaning his head against Jesus' chest in close contact with him. So when I was looking ahead to preaching through these songs of ascent, I was looking forward to this psalm because I've liked it for a while. But I think I had always overlooked the final half of the psalm, where the psalmist talks about his pain at the end. It's a complaint psalm at the end. And I have to admit, I struggle with the psalms that are talking about an enemy, and it seems like nearly every psalm talks about an enemy. They talk about seeking vindication and judgment, wanting the Lord to heap coals or break the bones or break the teeth of somebody. And I don't actually identify with that. But as I was examining this psalm this week, one of the things I recognized was if we want access to that intimacy with God, we need to understand the pain that the psalmist is talking about. To walk into that, to more fully gain access to the intimacy that he offers. So let's start with the pain. In Psalm 123, the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 read this. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. We have had more than enough. That more than enough is the same word that you use to be full for food or satisfied. It's often used in a positive sense. But here the psalmist is saying, okay, I'm full now. I, I don't need any more. No, no, don't bring any more to my table. I've had more than enough of the evil of this world, more than enough of the proud, of their contempt, of their hatred. He's experiencing those who hate him or despise what he stands for, or those who simply want to see him fail in life. And I think that's where I've run into the trouble with these sorts of psalms is because I've not really run into that in life. I've been protected from people who want to see me fail. Now, I'm not in politics, and I was never good at sports, and that's where you tend to find people who want to see you fail. And you see this, actually, you can see it if you go to any high school sporting event. Um, high school sporting events, the fans can often be brutal. I remember going to basketball games and watching as student sections taunted players. They knew everything about the player, their family name, their mom's name, their girlfriend's name, and if somebody looked different in any way, anything, Fans would taunt them, hoping they would miss shots, make mistakes. I even watched a group of guys make a girl cry on a free throw line. They made her miss both of her shots, and then afterwards the administration kind of banned them from going to those games anymore. They said it's enough of wanting to see the failure of the other team. Usually we don't have to experience that in life, and so even trying to relate to the contempt of the proud the mocking of those who want to see us fail, seems distant. But something that's, I think, in the same vein, the same line, is what he's hinting at when he has experienced the unfairness and injustice of life. And I think at that point, all of us can relate. It's easy to recognize that 
things don't always go as you feel like they should. And it doesn't seem right. Often that's because you look around and you want something badly in life and you don't have it and you see that others do. Ability, beauty, money, friends, you want a spouse and you're still single, you want kids and you struggle to have them, you want kids who are healthy and easy and yours are not. And often many of us have dealt with just the pain of loss, loss of a marriage, loss of a spouse, loss of our dreams, or things that we've just never had and always wanted. And unfairness can gnaw at you over time. So maybe no one is actually mocking you in life, but the existence of people who have what you don't, that you wish you had, often is mocking in and of itself. Their existence feels like they're contemptuous. So the question that I would ask in looking at the psalmist is when we are dissatisfied or despairing or in trouble, where do we look? Where do we look? What I've often found is we look at others or look to others, and specifically to those who are rivals of us, those who have hurt us if we've been hurt badly in life, or those whose lives are just better, who have the very things we want. We look to them with jealousy, clamoring and striving to have what they have, or looking to them with bitterness and just wishing ill at them. And if we're not the sort that looks at others in jealousy or in bitterness, we're the sort who look to ourselves. We look inward and feel miserable and self-piteous. My life is not what I wanted it to be. I can't believe I'm this old and I still only have this much. All the things I'd hoped for in life, this is not what I wanted. Or we look inward and look to ourselves and do my favorite thing, which is pretend like we don't care and just give up. I find that's the easy way out. Like when the going gets rough, I give up because then I don't have to worry about it anymore. But it's really just an inward-looking escape route. The psalmist doesn't just look at others, at his rivals. He doesn't just look inward with misery. The psalmist looks to God. He does admit the depth of his pain that he's feeling. And he does point to the evil of the proud who are all around him. But ultimately, he turns in humility to the Lord. We read this in that beautiful description of intimacy in verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, Till he has mercy upon us. The description is that of a servant or a maidservant. And in that ancient world, you were in a position of total and absolute vulnerability. You had very little rights and recourse on your own, except in appealing to your master, your mistress. Your provision, your food and clothing and, and place to live, and your protection you got into any sort of trouble, were only found in the benevolence and generosity of your master. So the metaphor, as one commentator suggests, stresses our total dependence upon the Lord. 
So what the psalmist is saying is, entrust your cause to the Lord fully and completely. Not, here's what I would like in the end, Lord. Here's how I'd like it to come out, but simply, I give it over to you, Lord. Total dependence on God like this requires authentic humility. It's the sort of humility you see in Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? In Luke 1.38, she's a teenager. The angel of the Lord comes to her. This is the Christmas story. You know it. The angel of the Lord comes to her and says, Mary, you're going to have a child. How can this be? I'm a virgin. The Lord will come upon you. The child that will be given to you will be the son of the Most High. And Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you have said. Later on, Mary sings this song in front of her cousin Elizabeth that's now known as the Magnificat, right? And what does Mary say to her cousin? How you like me now? How all of you girls in Nazareth like me now? I'm the one who's going to give birth to a son and he will beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. Of course I was chosen. Have you seen me? I don't do anything wrong. There's no mic drops. There's no in your face. There's no taunting. Mary says, he has looked on the humble estate of his maidservant. The Lord fills the hungry and lifts the humble. That's it. I don't deserve this. I don't know why he has chosen me but I am ready to depend on him. The Beatitudes where Jesus is talking to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount saying, this is what life is like in the kingdom. And then when he starts describing it, he starts describing the opposite of what they would have been hoping for. Instead of victory and dominance and and mastery and control and power and honor, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, those who hunger and thirst, those who are persecuted, for they will be filled. They will find mercy. They will see God. In the kingdom of God, the values and aspirations of every culture are upended. The humble and dependent are in. The self-reliant are out. The psalmist in Psalm 123 doesn't take care of his own business. What does he do? He seeks the mercy of God. You see this in verse 3, which is the central prayer of the entire psalm. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. In other words, when the psalmist is dealing with trouble and with evil people, and things not going as he wants, he does not react with anxiety or with bitterness or with self-pity or despair. Instead, he seeks the Lord, humbly trusting God's ways. He actually believes, for some reason, that the mercy and favor of God supersedes the deepest pains and greatest losses in life. That the mercy and favor of God is greater than the greatest pain and suffering. 
this takes a total trust in God. This, this won't do to just have like a lip service religiousness, like a nominal Christianity, because as soon as suffering comes, if you don't have total trust in God, you're just a nominal Christian, and you're going to fall. You're not going to believe it anymore. This is also not the don't worry, be happy of ill-timed Bible quotes when something really bad happens in your life. Somebody really close to you dies, and then, then somebody comes along and says, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Don't worry, weeping is for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. God, there's a purpose to everything. All those things may be true, but those ill-timed quotes are not the stuff of rooted theology and trust. Rather, a humility is involved. A humility that entrusts every injustice and struggle to the mercy of God and keeps looking to God no matter what happens next. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's not only appealing to the mercy of God, he's also seeking the face of God. We see this in that beautiful section and also in the, the first verse. The very first verse, the psalmist says, To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. I lift my eyes. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. In the Old Testament, the face of God is the source of one of two things, life or death. To see the face of God was the source of life or death. Nobody saw the face of God and was like, eh, I've seen better. Nobody walked away indifferent from the face of God. They were either destroyed or given calling and assurance and life like they had never experienced before. In the midst of our sin, our natural state of sin, we hide from the face of God, like Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding. Who can live before this holy God when I know what my life is really like? But by faith, by faith, we are not afraid and instead seek the face of God. His presence, the face of God, the presence of God throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament also brings favor, which is the word for mercy, or shalom, peace, wholeness, wellness, harmony. God's face is the place of assuring love and of calling to a new direction, as Jacob and Moses and Gideon found out. Psalm 27, which is a psalm, if you've been reading along in the daily readings, was one we read on Monday. Psalm 27, right in the middle of it, says something about the face of the Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 27 appeals, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. So he's looking at the two possible opposite ends. And what he associates with the two in verse 7, the verse right before it, he says, Be gracious and merciful to me, O Lord. So graciousness and mercy are associated with the face of the Lord. But then the hiding of God's face is associated with verse 9 and 10, which says to be forsaken by God. Graciousness and mercy are found when the Lord's face is there. And when he turns his face from you, it's forsakenness. The opposite of mercy and the face of God is when God turns away from you. 
which is why we need the face of God. There's a blessing that's in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, a blessing of Aaron, the priest. It's a pretty famous benediction and blessing. It's used in Jewish circles, Christian circles, and it goes like this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, which is the word for mercy. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, that's also face, and give you his peace or shalom. The face and countenance of the Lord results in the mercy and shalom of God. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian, was reflecting on this very benediction. He said, God's face shining on us, which this talks about, means God's delight in us and in our very existence. But, Wolf goes on to speculate, God knows I'm a sinner, so how can he delight in me? How? Wolf goes on to say, God covers our sin. He puts it behind him and forgets it. Um, can I have my God and Jesus come forward? And then I need one other volunteer. Average human, come. Yeah. <laughs> Sabrina, you get to be the average human. Which of you is God, which is Jesus? Uh, obviously, okay, so um, average human here, God right here, Jesus right here. So this is basically the physical illustration of the whole story, okay? Our average human right here is covered in sin. By nature, she is covered in sin. So the Lord cannot look upon her sin. But Jesus takes her sin upon him, and the Lord turns his back on Jesus so that he can look upon his daughter with the eyes of a loving father once again. Another way to illustrate this whole thing, man, you guys are tough, is Jesus exchanges his holy righteous cloak, which will be my coat, for the sin of each of us, switch, get back over there, so that when the Lord looks upon each of us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, God's perfect righteousness. When Jesus walked the earth, he did not sin. When Jesus looks at us, if our faith is in Jesus, he sees holy righteousness of Christ and not our sin that he has placed on his own son. Okay, thank you, everybody. Jacket back, thank you. <laughs> you can take your sin with you, actually. <laughs> I love willing volunteers. <laughs> I think that's called a draft. Um, Psalm 85, 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become right with God. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard summarized this. The one who loves 
God, the one who loves forgives in this way. He forgives, he forgets, he blots out the sin. In love, he turns toward the one he forgives and does not see your sin lying behind his back. God put our sin on Jesus, turning his face away from his own son so that each of us could see the face of God. The cross of Christ, that very gift, gives us the power to face the contempt of the proud, the gnaw of unfairness and injustice in life, the pain of failure and loss. Because the cross of Christ offers us the power of God's face towards us. The face of God towards us, in the way that was just illustrated, frees us from the struggle with identity and worth when dealing with rivals, enemies, and people who seem to do better in life. Think about this. Maybe not all of you, but why are many of us, why are many of you constantly afraid of not being appreciated or recognized? Why are you so easily offended or always feeling slighted? Why are you so worried about being misunderstood? Always needing to defend yourself? Wishing you could just explain so everybody would really know what you meant. Why? It's pride. In each of us is a self-assertion, self-concern, self-focus, self-reliance. We look to ourself to get what's ours. We try to deal with our own business on our own. You know, the opposite of caring too much what others think of you is not, is not not caring about what others think about you. If you don't care what anyone thinks about you, you might just be a jerk. Or as the English say, a prig. Rather, the opposite of caring what everyone thinks about you is caring so much what God thinks about you that you are freed from the tyranny of both what others think about you and what you think about you. The opposite is caring so much about what God thinks about you that you are freed from enslavement to what others think about you and even what you think about you. Because of the cross of Christ, your identity and your worth are neither tied to your sins nor to your accomplishments. You are not defined by your petty jealousy or your lust or your insecurities. Nor are you the sum of your great accomplishments in parenting or lawyering or sports. You are neither defined by your failures nor your successes. What defines you is the cross of Christ. You are sinful. You are loved. You deserve nothing. He has given you everything. You know, this imagery of looking to God as a handmaiden does to her mistress is a beautiful and tender image. Beth Moore, an author and speaker, notes the use in verse 2 of the 
we and the I of plural and singular throughout this whole um, psalm. And she sums up this way. She says, there's a sense in which we are all who put our trust in Christ. We are all servants of the Lord. And yet, I alone am his. God has a way of turning his face, his mercy, not just on all of us, but on me, on you individually. She writes, Christ can attend to each of us as if we are the only one in the world. You know, when all you have is Christ, you find that you may actually have everything you need. When you've been betrayed, rejected, hurt, when you're worn out by comparing and striving and trying to measure up to everyone else around you, spiritually resting before the face of God, sitting at the foot of the cross, is powerfully redemptive. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of struggle in life, in failures, in frustrations, and in pain, we turn against others, we turn inward, and we rarely turn to you fully. Give us the trust and the humility to lay everything before the cross and find in you all we need, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.